I could tell from the questions that your practice is deepening a lot. Really manifested a very flexible understanding of brief and concise. I think it shows great, great flexibility. <laughs> so I, I, I grouped uh, some of the questions uh, together. I'll read, I'll read some of them. This question is about the breath. I'm just beginning to learn that the breath can be a great help in terms of dealing with all the gobbledy gook that's in my mind. However, it's only when I get really tired of the gook that I realize the breath is a friend rather than a means of torture. (laughs) Can you talk a bit about how anapanasati, mindfulness of the breathing, has played a role in your practice and how your relationship with breathing has changed over the years? Another one related. So far we have not heard a lot about right concentration. I note that concentration follows mindfulness in all lists, whether it be the five faculties, the five strengths, the seven factors of enlightenment, or the Eightfold Path. Is concentration a more advanced practice? In this Burmese tradition, where does concentration fit? Does concentration equal jhana, or absorption? What is the relationship of concentration to mindfulness in Vipassana practice? Sometimes it seems difficult to tell them apart. What other concentration practices uh, beside metta um, can be useful in Vipassana practice? I think that um, The coming to understand that the breath really is a friend is a tremendous uh, development in practice. You know, so often in the beginning we may be over-exerting in order to be mindful of the breath and to catch every sensation. And it's like we're looking so hard that the very overexertion or over-efforting obscures how utterly simple it is. And you think that the Buddha said that the path to enlightenment, the path to awakening, all unfolds from being mindful in the present, and that the breath is always present. Do you ever get that moment of just this tremendous appreciation and delight that all we have to do is sit here? The breathing is happening anyway, and just come back to the mindfulness of the breath.
There's a, a little book by one of the teachers here at IMS, uh, Narayan. She wrote, she did this very little book, and it's mostly pictures, but under each picture she has just one or two lines. And the whole book is like, when walking, just walk, when dressing, just dress, when eating, just eat, when breathing, just breathe. And I picked that up and I was looking through it, and it came back to me when I was on self-retreat, and I really appreciated how helpful it was as the reminder that when we're breathing, just breathe. That there's nothing extra we have to do. There's one uh, part of the Satipatthana Sutta, when the, in the section on mindfulness of breathing, where the Buddha is he's laying it out so clearly, simply says, when the yogi, you know, when the meditator is breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. When I'm breathing out, I know I'm breathing out. Is there anyone who can't do that? I mean, it's so simple. It's so simple. And it becomes such a friend when we take refuge in the simplicity, when there's not a lot of effort and there's not a lot of striving, not a lot of expectation. I'm breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. I'm breathing out, I know I'm breathing out. And when the mind gets distracted, we just come back to that simplicity. The concentration comes from the continuity of mindfulness, and that's why concentration often follows mindfulness in all those lists that were mentioned. And so there doesn't really even need to be some special effort at concentration, because that will come simply from the continuity of paying attention moment after moment. And we we can pay attention in this very, very simple way. Now this also carries over to the walking. Very often when I do the walking practice, I have this sense of tremendous gratitude of how simple it is. This path to enlightenment, this path to awakening. That all I need to do is take a step and be aware of the step. Feels like this great gift you know, that we have. There are different levels, as you know, of of concentration. And in the context of Vipassana, what's really emphasized is the momentary concentration, as opposed to the concentration of absorption in an object, which is the jhanas, the Pali word for that. Um, And they can be very helpful, and we, some people here are practicing that in the context of the Brahma-viharas, the metta and compassion. All of the Brahma-viharas can be done 
in an intensive way for the development of jhana. But Upandita has spoken a lot about what he calls the vipassana jhanas. And that is just that level of concentration which is developed in the mindfulness practice sufficient to see the three characteristics, to really see the impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and selflessness. And it all comes from this incredibly simple awareness. Breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. Walking, I know I'm walking. If we are not our body, thoughts, feelings, or emotions, then what are we? What are the ramifications Or how does this affect our lives, or the quality of our lives? Or what is different, or how is it different? If there's no self, certainly there is something personal and unique to each of us. What would be a more accurate description, then, of what this individuality or personage is? Can it be spoken of in terms of being, or essence, or personality? I was really glad for this questions, or these questions, because it gives me the chance to mention my favorite no-self image example, which I can then elaborate on. If we are not our body, thoughts, feelings, or emotions, then what are we? They make the transition now to being outside, looking up at the sky, and seeing the Big Dipper. You're all probably familiar with the constellation, the Big Dipper. A question I've been asking for the last 35 years. (laughs) Is there really a Big Dipper? No. (laughs) There's no Big Dipper up there. (laughs) What we're seeing, you know, are stars or points of light in a certain pattern, a certain relationship. We create a name. We create a concept. Big Dipper. What's so amazing about the understanding that there's no Big Dipper is that nothing in our experience changes. Nothing changes up in the sky. So it's not as if we say, well, there's no Big Dipper, and then, you know, there's nothing, there's just a black hole. It's simply that we are recognizing, and this is the crucial the crucial uh, level shift in meditation practice, and it's, it's just the gateway to awakening, it's simply we begin to recognize the difference between our concepts and the designations we have for experience and the experience itself. So, 
when the question is asked, if we are not our body, thoughts, feelings, emotions, then what are we? To say that there's no we, that there's no I, that there's no self, doesn't change anything. The thoughts are there, the emotions are there, the sensations are there. Everything is exactly as it always was. We're just freeing ourselves from the prison or the the prison or the, the filter of the concept of the designation self, I, we. So then the question, the following question, which, well, what effect does this have? Now, so what? So we see through the concept. First, it's the understanding that our experience is exactly as it always was. So it's not that the realization of selflessness suddenly, you know, we just disappear. Everything remains exactly as it was. But when we're not caught and we're not attached to the concept, to the designation, then it enables us to see that each of these elements of experience are constantly changing. As I mentioned, I guess, a week or two ago, the concepts remain the same. Big Dipper, you know, we saw Big Dipper Tonight and last night, and we'll see Big Dipper tomorrow, the concept stays the same. The actual experience in the moment is continually changing. So when we free ourselves from attachment to the concept, and when we can live in that freedom, it opens the possibility of us seeing very directly and very intimately that all of these elements which we are designating as self, as I, we're seeing that all of these elements are in constant change. When we see that change in a very direct and immediate way, the mind doesn't get attached, doesn't cling. When it doesn't cling, it doesn't suffer. It's really a very nice little progression here from concept in suffering to freedom from and freedom in the use of concept to not suffering. And that's the, that's the manifestation in our world and in our lives. So what is it then that distinguishes us? This was the last question. If there's no self, certainly there is something personal and unique to each of us. And there is, and it's from not seeing that clearly that we do get attached to the concept Joseph, or each one of us. So what is unique? What is unique is a certain pattern to all of these elements. So there is a pattern, it's not that it's just a big jumble. And there is a continuity to the pattern. 
And just like when we look up in the sky, yes, there is a pattern to those uh, points of light. We understand the pattern, we see the pattern, we give a name to it. But the pattern is not a thing existing in itself. It's simply the appearance of things in relationship to one another in a certain way. Does this seem clear? <laughs> now, when we're just going back, going back to the breath, we're sitting just in the simplicity of the breath and the breath being known. Where is the I in that? Where is the self? Where is the Joseph? It's not, it's just, it's just these changing sensations being known, or thoughts arising, or emotions coming and going, being known. When we can be right on that level, then we use the concept, you know, in this relative world, we use it, and it's convenient. But we're not caught by it, we're not imprisoned by it, and it allows us, again, to see the impermanence so that we don't cling, so that we don't suffer. I've heard the instruction to regard thinking as a sense door, yet I don't remember hearing the instruction to simply note thought, uh, to note a thought as thinking unpleasant. Have I just not been listening? What is up with that? Could you review the qualities to investigate while attending to the sense doors of hearing, tasting, seeing, and smelling? While it is clear to me that I can check out what's happening in terms of pressure, heat, movement, etc., while attending to touch or feeling, I'm a little less clear on what to check into through these other sense doors. These questions really follow up a lot on the possibility of seeing directly without the veil of concept. It is very useful at times with thought or image. Not at times, always, (laughs) in every moment when it arises to see it as if it were just another sense object, like a sound or a sensation. It's simply another arising of experience in the moment. And when we're caught, we could be caught either in a a thought, which is words in the mind, or an image, which is pictures in the mind. I found it very helpful to add to the note, thinking or seeing, that quality, pleasant or unpleasant. Because the reason we get caught is we're either attached to or averse to the feeling tone, to the pleasantness or unpleasantness. At one point, I was, in one point in my practice, I was having a lot of very seductive images come into my mind. And I was really being carried away by them. And I tried simply noting seeing, 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 but... It just didn't didn't help. 
So at a certain point, I started noting, in the moment of the seeing of the image, I started noting contact pleasant. Because there was that moment of contact with the sense object, in this case an image, but it could have been a thought. Contact, pleasant. And that really keys into the whole law of dependent origination. You know, it describes the process of us getting caught. We have, the sen- we have a body, we have the sense bases, the sense organs. There will be contact. When there's contact, automatically there's feeling. It's either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. If we're not mindful right there, right at that point, we just we fall into the pattern of desire, craving, or aversion. And so with the thought or with the image to emphasize that moment, it was like hitting the right acupuncture point. You know, it was just getting very precise. The moment of its arising, contact pleasant. And it was amazing. It was like the whole, that whole momentum of dependent origination was cut at that point into just a moment of mindfulness and non-attachment. So thought and image should be treated in the same way as all of the other sense objects. How to be with the other senses? In this, in this second question, you know, tasting or smelling or hearing. The key is, again, dropping down from the conceptual level. We don't hear a bird. We don't taste pizza. You know, we don't smell, I don't know, whatever. All of those are concepts. You know, in tasting, it's really interesting to really get beyond the concept of what we're eating and to be so careful and precise and just watch the play of tastes in the mouth. You know, it's sweet or sour or salty or bitter or the range of taste, and to be right on that level, not on the level of the concept about the food, what the food is. And again, in, when we're on that level of taste, and actually with the taste, with the exploration of taste, you can even begin to feel where on the tongue you know, it first emerges. And after how many chews does the taste emerge? And then what happens to it? There's that level of of tremendous care. And to notice all the the responses. You know, whether there's liking of some tastes, disliking of others, or if you can simply be mindful, it's this, it's this, it's this. And the same thing with sound or smell. We don't hear a car, we don't hear a bird. That's thinking. What we're hearing is just that vibration of sound. You know, and to be right on that level. When we're on the concept level, it's so interesting. It creates such a sense of duality. If we're in the, in the experience, yes, I'm hearing a bird. Well, I'm here. Bird is out there. When we're simply in that experience of sound being known and, and in that vibration of sound, the whole notion of inside and outside disappears self and other. It's a very non-dual space. It's really quite amazing 
how much of our lives is spent in this dualistic world of concept and how concepts create that duality. When we simply drop into simply the bare experience of what's happening, a lot of the separateness and divisions completely disappear. How do emotions, as opposed to feelings, figure in the Buddha's teachings? How can psychotherapy be useful as part of the path to freedom? How would skillful psychotherapy deal with questions of the self? What extent, if any, do we need to work through our personal stories in a psychological way in order to experience freedom and liberation? Where there has been early life trauma experience, is healing possible through meditation practice alone? That is, to not work with one storyline, as in therapy. Or to put it another way, that that our psychological woundings occur in relationship isn't necessary to include relationship work as part of one's healing integration process and not just inner exploration, however valuable and insightful that can be. This is a big question (laughs) with many sides to it. First, just, just a simple question of definition which is how do emotions as opposed to feelings figure in the Buddhist teachings, is really just how, how the words are used uh, in the traditional teachings. As you know, feeling in the Buddhist lexicon refers specifically to the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. That's how feeling is defined. And what we call emotions are really included in the Buddhist vocabulary under mind states. So all the emotions are there, but that's what they're called. Uh, So what is the relationship of a psychological level understanding to the path of Dharma insight? And thinking about it a little bit, it feels to me like it's you know the image of the double helix of the DNA the strand, uh, or it's just this interwoven double strand. I think for most of us, our path unfolds through this interweaving of these two strands. And we might each start in quite different places, and I'll just give a few examples. Traditionally, we would just come and practice, you know, watching the breath, developing some concentration. And it's interesting that one of the functions of concentration is actually to suppress the unwholesome mind states. You know, so in the Western psychological terms, we hear the word suppress and immediately it sets off you know, alarm bells, which in a certain context is quite correct. But there is 
when it's done in a correct way and in a balanced way, it actually is quite helpful to suppress the defilements. It's like the image is used of like in a pond filled with weeds, building a, a, a fence under the water to keep the weeds out. So that as long as the fence is there, the water within is clear, is free of weeds. So we can build an inner fence through the power of concentration, through the development of concentration. So we create this it's like a little place of refuge, of stillness, of peace, of calm. And in that space, we're actually able to develop some clear insight into the characteristics, into the impermanence, into the selflessness, to the unsatisfactoriness. So in that sense, the suppression of the defilements can serve in the cause of clear seeing. That's one piece. Another piece, and this is from the other side, sometimes because of our own particular conditioning, you know, and personal history, strong emotions, some of which may be wholesome, some very afflictive, that is causing suffering, they are so predominant, so strong, that it feels like there's no way these can be suppressed, even temporarily. That we really have to deal with them and process them in a certain way. On this side, from this perspective, it can be done in many ways. The opening to, exploring, processing, and the emotional content of our lives can happen in therapy, you know, in the therapeutic mode. It happens in Vipassana, as you well know. You know, where you're sitting and you're in that moment-to-moment mindfulness, things come up. All the different emotions arise in the practice. And through the practice of mindfulness, we're not trying to keep them out. You know, we're not building a fence. We're actually opening to them, letting them in, and learning how to be with them. And this takes quite a bit of practice, learning how to be with them without identifying with them, without taking them to be self. And that involves a whole process of clear recognition, a process of acceptance, but we really are open and receiving them, and then not identifying, and that is a way of bringing the mind to some kind of balance. When we have done this to some extent, we can approach it from, a, from the other side again, of working with the concentration. We've cleared out one level right, of stuff, develop some concentration, build the fence, benefit from the power of the concentration to see more deeply, 
as we see more deeply, psh, other stuff may come up. Then we have to process the other stuff. So do you get the sense of how it's, it's not one way or the other, but I really see that it's this, this interweaving of both approaches which can be so helpful. I think Buddhism contributes a very radical notion to psychology and It's a little easier talking about it here than in California. <laughs> but it's, it's delicate. It's very delicate. So, <laughs> be prepared. One of the things that... This radical notion that Buddhism brings to psychology is an ethical framework for our mental states, for our mind states, for our emotions. So the Buddha is really saying that some emotions are skillful, are wholesome. Some are unwholesome. You know, it's, it's interesting, even in the way we talk about it, it's easier to say that if one is saying mind states. If one says certain mind states are wholesome, certain mind states are unwholesome, so that goes down easier. But as soon as we use the word emotion, it gets very delicate because it gets translated easily into the thought if we have what are called the afflictive emotions. What does unwholesome mean? It simply means that it causes suffering. That's the meaning. It doesn't mean sinful. It doesn't mean that we're sinful. It just means this mind state or this emotion is afflictive. It's the cause of suffering. I mean, it's very easy to see if if the mind, if we're feeling the emotion of hatred, is there any doubt? You know, that this is, this is causing suffering to ourselves and others. And so the Buddha is just calling it that. He's saying, yeah, look carefully. Some years ago, quite a few years ago, I was teaching a retreat at the um, Snowmass Benedictine Trappist Monastery in Colorado. And they, it's, this is a very liberal, liberal order. And they just had, had a workshop this is a group of, of Benedictine and Trappist monks. Uh, and they just had a workshop on being with emotions. And they had just learned to honor their anger. And then I come along. <laughs> and I said, honor your anger. Hmm. And I realized that there is a big difference between honoring one's anger and honoring the truth that anger is present. That's what we have to do. We have to honor the truth of what's present. So there's not kind of denial or dissociation. We are really seeing what's present. But it's not the anger that should be honored. It's not the hatred that should be honored. 
not the envy that should be honored, it's not the jealousy that should be honored. These, within the Buddhist context of an ethical psychology, and yes, these emotions, these mind states, cause suffering. And the suggestion, the offering, is that there is a way actually to come out of this suffering. Again, I I just want to, to emphasize this point. Until we're fully enlightened, we all have these afflictive emotions at one time or another. So it's not to be interpreted when we when we apply this ethical understanding to the world of emotion, it's not to interpret that, oh, I'm a bad person for having these. You know, interpreted in terms of sinful. All of that is extra and quite beside the point. It's simply to see, to open to the awareness of what the emotion is, honoring the truth that that is our experience in the moment, opening to it, seeing it, assessing, is this unskillful, meaning causing suffering, we practice letting it go. Is this a wholesome emotion? Is this a skillful mind state? We cultivate it. There's a tremendous empowerment when we bring an ethical dimension into psychology. As I said, I think this is really one of the great gifts of the Buddhist teachings. I want to read something just in terms of how these two um, these two strands of the double helix work together, of how we can have very deep insight. You know, when the mind when the mind gets concentrated, and we have penetrating insight, even to to the highest truths to the ultimate truth, still, that's not the end of the path. That's, that's still the, the beginning. I want to read this. It's a, a piece from uh, the great Korean Zen master, Shinul, who was, uh, it was 11th century or... And he wrote this. He wrote this great, wonderful book called "Tracing Back the Radiance." So I'll just read a little of this. For innumerable eons, without beginning up to the present time, ordinary people have passed between the five destinies, coming and going between birth and death. They obstinately cling to self, and over a long period of time, their natures have become thoroughly permeated by false thoughts, inverted views, ignorance, and habit energies. 
Although coming into this life, they may suddenly awaken to the fact that their self-nature is originally void and calm, and no different from that of the Buddhas. Even though we may suddenly awaken to the, to the deepest, truest nature of our mind, these old habits are difficult to eliminate completely. Consequently, when they come into contact with either favorable or adverse objects, then anger and happiness, propriety or impropriety, blaze forth. The defilements are no different than before. He goes on to say, so how could you neglect the cultivation, what he calls gradual cultivation, simply because of one moment of awakening. After awakening, you must be constantly on your guard. If deluded thoughts suddenly appear, do not follow after them. Reduce them and reduce them again until you reach the unconditioned. Then and only then will your practice reach completion. Nevertheless, although you must cultivate further, you have already awakened suddenly to the fact that deluded thoughts are originally void and the mind nature is originally pure. And I just, it's so complete in the way he talks about this. You know, through our deepening practice, and this, this happens at, at all the stages of our development. Right? All along it's the same process. We have certain deep insights. Until we're fully enlightened, the defilements still arise when conditions are there. So we need to keep practicing, but the fruit of that deep insight is that we are relating to the defilements in a different way. And that's how this process, whether we talk about it in the Buddhist terminology of defilements and awakening, or we talk about it more in psychological terms, you know, of the, of the afflictive emotions, you know, and understanding, it's the same process. We have to open to the emotions, the afflictive emotions, process them through enough so we can come to a place of stillness. In the stillness, deepen our insight into the emptiness of it all, to the transparency of it all. In that greater openness, more defilements are going to come, but the fruit of the insight is that we're relating to them differently. And so it's just this ongoing interweaving. What does it mean to you in your life to discover freedom right in the midst of suffering? Would you care to give any personal examples of how your practices help, make, help you make such discoveries? assuming that you still do suffer every once in a while. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where does faith come from? 
How does one replace despair with faith? Is it possible to leave doubt out of it? It always seems rather tautological reasoning. For me, one of the great beauties of this whole path, this whole great path to awakening, is to actually see the fruit you know, so many times in one's life. And where does the fruit, where can it be seen so clearly? Exactly at those times when we're suffering, when we're in the midst of suffering, and we have enough faith when we have enough faith to see the possibility that there is a way out of the suffering. And so one of the questions was, where does faith come from? It comes uh, from many sources. It comes in one way from having heard the teachings. Right? So we are at least aware of a possibility. And it opens us to a possibility because then in the midst of suffering, which happens for all of us at different times in our lives, instead of the suffering being the cause, cause of despair or further bewilderment or confusion, because we have some framework of understanding a possibility, we take that suffering and we actually examine, we investigate what is happening here. Some years ago, and this is, it's been quite a while now, but it was an incredibly vivid time, I was doing a two-month self-retreat down at Cape Cod with you know, just a few of us were together. We had rented a house. And it started off great. And just everything was going well, and the concentration was good, and the body was open. And then about a month into it, disaster struck. My body just became a wreck. And my mind, and it was through a set of circumstances of things, things that I had done, you know, that, that were the, the cause of that, that body, intense, intense dukkha. And I was just filled. I just, I was drowning in anguish about what I had done because I was really in like a state of shock. My body, my body had gone into a state of shock. So it was, it was just this incredible, incredible dukkha. And the physical dukkha was was very intense. And on top of that, this anguish. You know, and the refrain in my mind was, "How could I be so stupid?" How could I be so stupid to have done that? It was, I think, the most difficult time of my life. I mean, it was so intense and so pervasive. I, I could hardly move. I mean, I was doing most of the meditation lying down and just kind of hugging a pillow. You know, it's like, because the least little thing I did, any, it, it all went out. You know, the neck went out, the back went out. It was just 
like my body was just in this intensely vulnerable place. So I was with this, you know, for weeks, going through this. And I was alternating back and forth between hope and fear. You know, those, those were the two alternations. I was hoping to get out of this state and fear of what it was and that it would continue. So hope and fear, hope and fear, a lot of grasping and a lot of aversion. My mind was really unbalanced. And then at a certain point, you know, when, when I really felt I had, I had touched rock bottom, you know, I, I remember I was doing just some lying meditation. You know, because I was, I was really afraid to move my body. I was just lying there. And something, it's like my body twitched. And something else went into spasm. <laughs> you know, if, I, if I can't even lie still, you know, if that's not a refuge, it's like I felt there was no refuge. There was, that there was no place you know, to be safe. And that's when it was amazing. It was like just in hitting rock bottom. And I've mentioned this in some talks. The word courage just spontaneously started arising in my mind. Just, just that one word, courage. And that, that sense of courage meaning strength of heart. And I repeated like a mantra. You know, just courage, courage, courage. And it was just, I don't know, it was just like this magic moment when everything shifted from this tremendous despair and hopelessness, you know, and fear and all of those really, really afflictive emotions and mind states. And the word courage somehow reoriented everything and I understood it to mean and to be just that willingness to be present. That's all. I was, it was just like this simple, simple settling. You know, getting out of that, getting out of that deep, deep pattern of reactivity. And it was amazing. It was just amazing. All of the suffering, which went on, it actually went on for a couple of years. From that moment, it was all okay. You know, and it, not suggesting this, you know, this was some state of ultimate freedom, but it was an example and a very powerful example for me of discovering freedom right in the middle of suffering. You know, a relative freedom that I had gone from a place of total contraction of mind and body to a place of openness to what was there. And it all had to do with acceptance. You know, and it was acceptance flavored, flavored with, this, with this feeling of courage. Now that's what courage really means. Just in less, in a less dramatic way. I mean, that that was really a, a very powerful experience for me. But in 
more ordinary ways, you know, we're suffering when we don't get what we want. You know, we want to do something and somebody else has a different view and they're kind of blocking our desires. So what's the feeling? You know, we feel frustrated or impatient or angry or whatever. We get caught in some contraction of the heart. A phrase that I've used a lot in those situations, which again has just pointed to the possibility of freedom in the midst of suffering, a phrase that has helped me a lot is, relax the heart. Because in those times I can feel, when there's that strong, frustrated wanting, and feel that contraction. So just relax the heart. Now it's, almost, it's almost like a physical exercise. We're relaxing that. And then it becomes possible actually to see diverse points of view. We're not so locked in to just our way of seeing things. When we relax the heart, it's actually possible see something from another point of view. You know that phrase from Bankai, the, the famous Zen master, when he says, don't side with yourself. You know, that's a great, it's a great teaching. Carol pointed out that the mind is out of control, and that one definition of anatta is out of control. Could you discuss this further? I actually think that out of control, even though we all use that phrase at different times, I don't think it's the best phrase, because just the connotation of that in English we tend not to hear it literally because the connotation of the phrase out of control sort of suggests a kind of chaos. You know, things are out of control. And that's not what anatta means. In this sense, out of control means ungovernable. And that suggests not chaos, or confusion, but basically the principle of lawfulness, that things happen, things arise, when the appropriate causes and conditions are present. So we could you know, stand in front of the stove and just say, may the tea boil, may the water boil, may the water boil, may the water boil. Nothing's going to happen unless you turn on the stove and you create the heat and the heat provides the condition for the water to boil. This is what ungovernable or out of control in this sense means. And it suggests the tremendous importance, and this is again the great gift of the teachings. I think it would be very difficult for us, I mean it would be almost impossible, for us to sort out with real deep clarity the lawfulness of how our minds work, 
and what factors are needed to awaken and what factors cause us suffering. And it's like this is the, the, the brilliance and the compassion of the Buddha's enlightenment. It's like he was able to see with this astounding clarity and depth just the deepest workings of the mind and the lawfulness of it all. And so he saw which factors need to be cultivated to bring an end to suffering, which factors bring, up, bring us more suffering. So ungovernable or out of control in this way doesn't mean sort of an abdication of responsibility. Well, things are just out of conf- control and confused and chaos, so I guess there's nothing to do. It means that it's not enough to simply wish for something to happen. We need to understand what are the causes and conditions for it to happen and then cultivate those causes and conditions. There are a lot more questions in three minutes. Oh, maybe I'll. There were a whole, whole bunch of enlightenment questions. Uh, maybe I'll leave them aside. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just. <laughs> I'll try to weave it into some talk. Is there sense, meaning, and purpose to life on earth? (laughs) Is it serving something else? Why are we here going through this exercise? Is it a test? (laughs) Well, it's funny, when I first read the question, I I had a similar reaction, I kind of smiled at it. But then, as I thought about it, I thought, no, it really is. Is there a sense or meaning or purpose to our lives? And I think it's really a profound question. What is it that we're doing here? And as often is the case, uh, the Dalai Lama had has wonderful words addressing just that question. He said, we are visitors on this planet We are here for 90, 100 years at the very most. During that period, we must try to do something good and something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others share that peace. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal and the true meaning of life. And that's so much of what we're doing here. It's really this deep and profound work to understand peace in ourselves, to come to that place of peace in ourselves through all the ups and downs, through all the range of emotions and hindrances and mind states and meditative experiences and all of it. You know, through this this tremendous abundance of all kinds of experience, where is that place of peace? 
And as we find it, and as we taste it, and we, we experience it, we develop that in ourselves and help others share in that peace. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal and the true meaning in life. And that's the whole understanding we've mentioned of bodhicitta. You know, it's the aspiration, it's the understanding that we're not doing this for ourselves alone. But we really can undertake the practice with the motivation to awaken for the benefit of all. Let's sit for a few minutes. Breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know I'm breathing out. Keep it that simple. actually was one other question I wanted to answer, but it's really relevant only for those of you who have been here before. The question is, where is Kelsey? For those of you who weren't here before, Kelsey was one of the neighborhood Dharma dogs who was a total manifestation of metta. serving many IMS beings over the years. Uh, Kelsey moved to Florida. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.